Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's been a hell of a weekend. Bitcoin is dead! It's crashing! It's only worth 30-something thousand dollars. And, of course, if it was worth 30-something thousand dollars, let me make sure the mic is linked. Yeah, all right. So if it was only worth some 30-something thousand dollars right now and it hadn't gone up to 44, no one would say anything. But now the end is nigh. If you are interested in hearing all the times that Bitcoin has been declared dead, I will put a link for you. It's hysterical reading in the video notes today. But that's, we're, we're talking about blockchain today, uh, but not really Bitcoin or even cryptocurrency. In fact, today I'm, I'm talking about why blockchain is the future for anybody who actually cares about freedom and liberty and the rights of individuals. And nothing could make that more clear than what just happened with Parler. Social media network Parler. Some of y'all loved Parler. Some of y'all didn't care for it. Some of y'all hated it, whatever. It doesn't really matter. I think that anybody that gives a flying rip about free speech thinks what just happened is wrong. And if you don't know what happened, here's what happened. They were deplatformed by Google and Apple, having their apps removed. And then Amazon Web Services pulled the plug on them, which is really the real problem because if you can, if you have a browser, you can go to any website. You don't need, this is something people need to start getting their head around. You don't need an app for every website you use, okay? Use the Brave browser. Install Brave on your phone and on your computer. Stop using Mozilla. They're also part of the Church of the Woke. Uh, they say deplatforming is not good enough. We need to do more, right? Uh, remember the Brave, the Brave browser was founded, uh, by the original founder of Firefox in Mozilla. And uh, he did that after they kicked... See, they're not new to being woke. They got woke a long time ago, and his own board pushed him out, and he went out and built Firefall, uh, built, built Brave. He's also the guy that created uh, JavaScript originally. Pretty smart dude. And um, people have said to me when I recommend uh, Brave, but it's built on Chromium. It's the same software as Google's Chrome is built on. <sighs> they could just be... No, stop. You don't understand how open source works. You, and this is like saying that WordPress can shut down my website because I use WordPress open source software. Uh, they use the Chromium open source base code, and everything from that point forward is theirs. That's how open source works. So Brave is probably the best browser you can use right now, but... It's not block. They they play in the blockchain space, but Brave itself, a browser, is not really a blockchain based anything anyway. It's a piece. Of, it's an app or a piece of software. But a blockchain is how all these cryptocurrencies work. And have you ever thought to yourself, self? I wonder, since the government hates cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and Litecoin and Ethereum and all of this stuff and DeFi and all this. Dex exchange stuff Jack's talking about all the time. I don't understand. Since they hate it all, why don't they just why don't they just do what they did to Parler to to the cryptocurrency world? Because it can't. It doesn't work that way. There's not a place. There's not. I've, I've said this about Bitcoin since the beginning. Like, there's not a building somewhere with a big B on it that like you can hit with a drone cruise missile and then shut down Bitcoin. 
And you know what, you people that are like this, what are you going to do when you shut down the whole internet? You know what, shut the fuck up. I'm not talking to you. You're too stupid to listen to my videos. you got to go away, all right? Because the whole world is screwed. Every financial asset in the world is screwed if you shut down internet communications. Just piss off. I don't have time for you. From now on, whenever I see any of you people, hey, what are you going to do when you shut the internet off? Delete your fucking ass so I don't have to listen to you. Okay, back to where I'm going here. As long as there is... an There's other ways other than what you think of as the Internet, my dear friends, but I can't get into that today. But as long as you have a communication connection to the outside world, if something's on a blockchain, it's irremovable. Because there's thousands and thousands of computers participating in something called nodes on a network. And so when you, when you want to take down a social media platform like Parler, for instance, or MeWe, which is still up and running fine, and boy, there's lots of people, please come join me there. But I'm going to tell you about a new one in a second that's immune to this shit. I don't know who hosts MeWe. Hopefully it's not Amazon Web Services. If it is, MeWe needs to be looking for a new host now. Okay? Because you know they're part of the cabal. You know Amazon's part of the cabal. You know Bezos is part of the technocracy. You know that. So don't use them to host a critical component of your business. So you pull the plug. Well, now they got to find a new host. And this is not like moving your little WordPress site that some you know web programmer could do for you in about 10 minutes. You also have to find, now you're blacklisted, and like you, there's only, companies have, you know, when you have a service of a certain size, like a couple dedicated boxes doesn't get it done. You need sophisticated high-end systems to run like this if you're going to run from a centralized server. This is where blockchain comes in. So, for instance, I just joined Float today. I've been having people try to get me to join Float for a long time. We all only have so much time. But, uh, and I don't know if it's going to be, like, the social media platform of the future. I don't know that. You never know that. And Parler may be back, and if they are, I'm not going to leave. I'll still use them. I have, like, 7,000 followers there or something. I'll stay if, it, if they come back. But in the future, we need to be building our networks on platforms that are not so easily attacked. Because all you have to do is get the person's web host to say, screw off. You can say you'll sue or whatever, and you know what? If, if, if you're a lawyer and you're not chomping at the bit on an antitrust suit for what just happened to Parler, you're retarded, okay? You're an idiot. You shouldn't even have a Like, the, the ambulance chasers should be lining up for this, but I don't know if they are or not, but they should be. But this is irrelevant to us. If you take a social media platform and you put it on a blockchain, and there's other ones I know people are like, mine! Yeah, mine seems retarded, I'm sorry. It's too much of a pain in the ass to set up and it'll work. Float works like Twitter and, 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 and Parler did. You sign up and you're there and you follow people and it works. It's done, right? But it's on blockchain, which means there's no place that's like Float headquarters that you can attack or it's a distributed blockchain. So you have hundreds or thousands of nodes all over the world with different connections hosting this thing in pieces and parts. That's decentralization. And everything that we do going forward, right? That doesn't mean we abandon everything that's not, right? But everything we build going forward, those of us who want to be able to communicate, we want to get through this great reset together in networks, they're trying to keep you from talking to other people that see things the way you do. And most of you guys know, I'm not in this right-left political fight. This seems like the crux of it. It's not about right and left politics, guys. I mean, for fuck's sake, do you not understand what this is? This is shutting down the modern pubs. 
Our founders started the insurrection that created this nation in bars and pubs over pints of cider and brandy and wine and ale. Because that was where people met, that's where people talked, that's where people vented their frustrations, and that's where people found each other. Guess where we do that today, especially in the world of COVID-1984? Online. They're trying to close the virtual pubs. Screw that. And you know what? This is my message to big tech. Please keep doing it. Please, more. Ban me from YouTube, right? YouTube, Google, hey, here I am saying you guys are a bunch of lying bastards. You're a bunch of lying bastards. Ban me from YouTube. I dare you. Go ahead. Please, ban all of us. Ban us all. The more you ban us, the more you try to silence us, the louder our voices become. The more you do this, the more people walk away from your shitty, outdated dinosaur platforms that you have total control over and go somewhere else. And like I said, I'm not saying floats the promised land, guys. I don't know. But I'm there now. And like I said, I'm still on MeWe. I'm hoping they have a redundancy plan. I don't know if they do. But I know that going forward, if it's a new thing, if it's not on blockchain, I'm not going to be there. I don't have time for it. I don't have time to invest my soul and my heart and my passion into something that someone else has the, the, the ability to just pull the plug on. I'll keep using the base of what I have right now. We all got to earn a living. There's things that I have tied into some of this shit that makes me money, and I'll keep doing it. But I'm going to tell you right now, the future is in a world that they can't touch. It's where we create and manage our own money with cryptocurrency. It's where we protect our content with the eternal nature of a blockchain. And it's where we band together despite our differences. Despite our differences. Because a lot of the people that are banding together on these other alternative sites, they're not talking about frickin' politics. I'll tell you that a huge number of them are anarchists and libertarians and minarchists. All we want to do is be left alone. And they've said a long time, Beware the man that just wants to be left alone. He's really dangerous when you push him too far. That's not just about violence. All we want to be, the, all we want is to be left alone to work with each other, to communicate with each other, to share information with each other, and we just want to be left alone. You don't want to leave us alone. Keep it up. You are your own worst enemy, big tech. You are. Things are going to change, and they're going to change rapidly. What seems like a setback, guys, this whole trust the plan, you QAnon tards or whatever, throw that shit away. Stop using the drug. You guys are pumping up a drug. You know what that drug is called? Hopium. The two worst drugs that I've seen come out in 2020 were hopium and icantium. I can't do it, Jack. You're too blessed. Screw off, right? Man, Trump's going to sign the insurrection. I guess that's stupid shit I'm saying. No, he didn't. You don't sign the insurrection. The insurrection was signed when it was put into freaking law. You people that are waiting for someone to do this for you, you're going to be ones left on these shitty, outdated platforms by yourself. If you want to actually control your life, go to a place where you're not controlled. You people that are still on Facebook to follow me, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you there? Why are you making the cocksucker that does this shit to you money? What are you doing there? Anyway, I'm done for now. You want to know more about this? I know some of you only follow me on YouTube or Library or Odyssey or whatever. Um, 
you might want to listen to today's podcast. I'll be a little bit more chill, but I'm going to lay out what our future looks like for those of us who are willing to say, I've had enough, to take control and to walk away. And in some ways, we're going to have to walk away strategically. There's things that, like, we're not ready yet. But where we are, get to stepping before you get to boot. That's all I got to say. And yeah, Google, go ahead, ban me. See if I give a shit. Well, good morning, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 32. We're still here on YouTube. They haven't banned us yet. Uh, they might. I don't know. I kind of dared them to yesterday. Um, just in case they ever do, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube... It's better on Odyssey. I know some of you guys tried Odyssey for a while and said they had you know problems and all. Odyssey is an emerging company with emerging technology building up the robustness of the backbone of their blockchain, which means, yeah, sometimes things might not play perfectly, but they'll always be there, and they won't be taken down. <clears throat> and it gets better and better. And uh, I can't say exactly how, but my channel should perform a little bit better than the average channel right now during some beta testing that I'm part of. So give it another try if you haven't yet. Remember, you can tip your creators on library slash Odyssey. It's the same thing on the same backbone uh, with a different kind of GUI interface. So anyway, on to other things. Today's topic of the day is the one of the top ten most asked questions that I get as a survival teacher and as a permaculturist and as someone that teaches lifestyle design and food production is a component of that, how much land do I need to grow all my own food or how much land do I really need? Those are multiple versions of the same question. And like any switched on permaculturist, when you give me something that broad, I'm going to start out with the classic, well, it depends. But today, instead of it depends answer, I'm going to give you more of a generalization and try to give you a basic answer that will work for the largest number of people. So we have to start out with something. And I have to be very, very clear about this. You're not ever going to grow 100% of your own food. If you want to see what it takes to do that, um, check out Rob Greenfield's channel and his experiment where he did just that. He either grew, foraged, or bartered for his own food. And if he bartered for it, it had to be kind of like self-grown or self-foraged. He couldn't like barter for steak from a supermarket. And he did it for a year. He had some health issues. He lost a lot of weight. But he proved it could be done. But I'm going to tell you what else he proved, that most people will never do it. And he grew a butt-ton of food. He grew so much food, he was giving some food away. But when you try to produce all your own food through horticulture, not farming... Um, you are going to only be able to grow certain things. And you're going to need to grow and produce more fat and things like that. And so what held him back on some degree was, well, how do you get chickens if you have to grow their own food and you're living in the backyard of somebody, you know, quarter-acre property? So just throw that out. You're not going to grow your own food, 100% of your own food. And that's okay. You don't need to because if you have a surplus that's barterable or exchangeable in other things, you can use whatever piece of value you get for that to acquire the other foods that you want to consume because that's the second part of this. You want things that you're not going to grow. See this? This is Holler Roast Coffee. It's delicious. Nicole Sauce roasted it in Tennessee. I live in Texas, and neither one of us can grow coffee beans. Not practically anyway. So I want coffee in my coffee is whole cream. I don't have a cow. I'm not going to get a cow. Frankly, 
I don't want the work that goes with the cow. So I'm not going to be able to produce that particular fat nor butter for myself. See, see what I'm saying? I have to buy some things or barter or exchange for some things. I get an awful lot of meat through barter. Uh, I get meat through hunting. I get meat through, I guess you call it road, road foraging because even though it's against the law, I will pick a dead deer up in Texas and bring it home and process it if it's in good shape and recently hit. So there's a lot of ways I can augment this, but guys, my wife's going to run by the grocery store today on the way home for some stuff. So the way you got to start thinking about this is self-sufficiency and self-reliance and thinking of those differently. So self-reliance is a word that gets used interoperably and shouldn't be with self-sufficiency. We measure self-reliance in time. So when you have all the, your systems put together, include your self-sufficient systems and just your storage, and if somebody pulled the plug and you couldn't go anywhere or leave and you had to stay home and you could be basically okay for three months, you have three months of self-reliance. You see, it works in time. Self-sufficiency is how we have to think about it when it comes to producing food from our land. We measure self-sufficiency in percentile, not time. And that can add to our time, but we still measure it in time to make our mind work right. What do I mean by this? So, if I have a garden, and that garden produces 25% of all the food I consume, I'm 25% self-sufficient. And I'm self-sufficient indefinitely. There is no time limit on it other than if I get sick or old and I can't tend the garden anymore. But as long as I can tend my garden, and if I'm smart, I build my garden to accommodate aging. That's why I like my gardens nice and raised up. I don't have to bend over as much. Or if I have a grandchild or a neighbor that can help me out, my self-sufficiency, even though it's only 25% of my consumption, is unlimited with time. It goes on forever. That's what makes it sufficient versus reliant. If I have batteries to run my flashlight for three weeks, I am self-reliant in lighting for three weeks. All right. So now let's take it back to land and with the, everything we said and that you're not going to grow 100% of your own food. You're not going to grow all your own food. You don't need to. You're thinking wrong. We need to be thinking about building community, working with our neighbors, etc. And not everybody's going to do everything unless that's all you do all day long every day. In general, now be careful when I say this, I think that kind of an ideal homestead is going to have about a minimum of a half acre. I even have a whole series on my podcast called Half Acre Homesteading. And I want to be clear when I say that. You can do a lot on a quarter of an acre, right? And you can do a lot on three acres like I have, or five acres, or 50, or 500. When I say a half acre is ideal, what I'm actually talking about, though, is not you bought a house with a half acre lot. That can work. Don't take what I'm about to say wrong. What I mean is I'm looking in an ideal situation for somebody to really produce a lot of what they're going to consume and or sell for a profit so they can buy other stuff, a half acre of usable space. A half acre usable space. Right now I live on three acres. Pretty much 100% of it, other than where the buildings sit, is usable one way or another. It's flat. It's laid out nice. I don't have neighbors up my ass. I don't have any HOA, so I can do anything I want with it. I could have almost all three acres in, you know, raised bed gardens. What sucks is my soil sucks. My soil doesn't just suck in quality. It sucks in depth. A lot of my property, my soil is three to four inches deep. Some places it's less, and then it's slab rock. So I'm basically gardening on a parking lot, so I have to do raised beds and such. This exact same property, if it was down 50 miles southeast of me in the Blackland Prairie, there's that same rock there, but it's like 80 feet down. 
I could farm the whole thing down there if it's the same exact layout, and the layout's really great. So you got to look at the way the property lays, what's the solar orientation, how many trees are there. But if whatever that comes out to, you could have a five-acre property, and you could have a nice half acre that you could have good solar aspect to, do your greenhouse, a little pond, all that stuff, and it's everything and more than you need. Or you could have an acre with a half acre doing that. It could be the same thing. You have to look at neighbors, restrictions. You have to look at... When you have limitations on your design, your design restrictions, they go in levels. And like level one is like a mountain. If a mountain shades your property, it will always shade your property. It's, Im it's immovable. Level two is like codes and laws. You, they can be changed, but it's very, very difficult. It's easier to blow the top off the mountain sometimes than it is to change a code that says you can't have a chicken. So you have to look at those restrictions. If you have an unrestricted area, a nice laying, somewhat square-ish or trapezoidal half acre, not only can it produce most of what you need, most people can't really effectively manage much more as just themselves and maybe a partner in their family. Because now we can look at within that half acre, we can do ducks or chickens or both. We can do quail, we can do rabbits, we can do a pond like the one behind me. This is an 8x8 pond. I mean, this will fit in almost any suburban backyard. I would definitely go, if you're ever going to build one of these, straight out to a 12x12. If you can dig a hole, you can do the 12x12 I had. Be only about 30 inches high. That will keep your ducks out mostly anyway. Maybe you put a little fence around it to, to if you have ducks to, to, to reiterate that. But then you can go three, four, five, six foot down. You can go get yourself a, an above-ground pool as long as you don't have that restriction. And I've been saying this, but I mean, even if you paid somebody to come install the pool for you with a bobcat to put it two feet in the ground, because you put an above ground pool two feet in the ground, you can get that done for about a thousand bucks in work, and you can probably get the pool for free off of Craigslist and then pick up a new liner for a couple hundred dollars. So under a thousand bucks all in, even if you don't do all the work, you could have a 24,000 gallon pond. And then you don't have a pond. If anybody asks, no, you have a pool. Right? And you're just using a natural filtration system that happens to grow fish. And then we got to start looking at, well, what are the actual goals here? You're not going to produce 100% of your own food, so start thinking in percentages. So if I grow chickens and I pick a dual-purpose bird, if you want a lot of meat from chickens, I don't recommend that. If something excels, if somebody's, something's good at two things, it excels at neither generally in livestock. But you can take something like a Brahma chicken breed, something that's fairly large, fairly substantial, and then, you know, you, you can incubate your own eggs, and maybe you produce 25 chick, 25 roosters a year that you can't, you can sell the pullets, right? The, the girls, you can sell them off to neighbors and friends, put them on Craigslist. They go like that, folks. Especially if they're like 8 to 12 weeks old. Where you're like, okay, these are females and these are males, and then eat your roosters. If you produce 25 roosters a year every other week, you could have one chicken for dinner. Now you have one fourteenth, it's a start, of your protein for your primary protein meal. If they're also giving you eggs, though eggs are so underrated as a protein because they're subsidized in this country, and we buy them for pennies. But the kind of eggs you can produce in a backyard system, now you've got, you know, with a small flock, you can produce enough eggs that your family eats eggs every day. There's another piece of your protein and fat requirement. Now, if we put in a rabbit hutch and we grow enough rabbits to have one rabbit a week, now we're at one-seventh, right? Now we're starting to, like, two to three meals a week we can bank on the protein and fat from our backyard. Rabbits don't have fat. Backyard rabbits that are well-fed have fat and fry them in bacon, grease, and butter and shut up. Okay, you're not going to get rabbit starvation. I'm not even going to go down there. Now, if we put in a pond, 
and we start growing our own fish, maybe a couple ponds. We put in some minnows, some minnow tanks that filter down into the pond, etc. So we're having a very low feed bill. If we can take one meal worth of fish, just one meal worth of fish a week out of this pond, and sustain it either with breeding in the pond, or we can go down to the park pond and catch some small fish. And you know, hey, I took out eight fish over the last three weeks. When I go fishing, I need to bring at least. 10 in case a couple die home and throw them in there. If we just do that, now we've got another seventh. All of a sudden, we're getting into the neighborhood of 25 to 30% of our protein, not even talking about gardening yet. Now, if we start gardening, we start taking some of what we're gardening, we feed it to the ducks, we start building other systems, then we can start to expand out. And it's reasonable that a half acre that's workable without killing yourself, horticulture versus farming, you'll be able to produce 40, 50, 60% of your nutritional requirements. Now, the, the, the largest expense that we have in society today, other than housing and freaking health insurance, because boy, the government fixed that, didn't they, is our food bill. So if we can cut our third to fourth, you know, some people's car payments, because you buy stupid, expensive cars. If we can take our third to fourth largest expense that we have, and cut it by 50% or more, and eat better quality, what's that half acre worth? I just want to reiterate, quarter acre probably can do almost as much if you're clever with how you design it. But you might need an acre or two to get that. In Arkansas, the property I had there was five acres, two acres more than I have here. I had about a third of an acre that was really usable unless I wanted to get in bulldozers and chainsaws. And I didn't. And it was really steep, too. So unless I wanted to start terracing stuff and all, I had that, this piece out front. And it was what it was, and it did fine for that. It wasn't like this, where I have all this livestock running around. It didn't make sense. It wasn't. So you've got to look at not raw acreage. Usable. And what I would tell you is, for most of you, I know some of you like, man, I want like 500 acres. As long as you know why, fine. As long as you have a plan to manage it, fine. But if you gave me 500 acres that was mostly wooded, I would probably almost never touch it with a chainsaw or a bulldozer. I might earthwork and, and set up and do ponds and dams and civil pasture on about four to five acres. And the rest of it would be zone five permaculture, baby. It would just be wild managed. Maybe a little bit of zone four horticulture spread through it. And that's, then I got deer, I got mushrooms, I got, you know, if there's any kind of native water on the, you know, more fish, etc. And it's more of a buffer from the people around you. As a human being, especially if you're not going to be a full-time farmer, you don't have time to do the type of work that it takes to feed yourself 100%. It's, it's weird. It's hard to do 100%, but it's not that hard to do 50. That's a good target. It's a good place to start. I hope you guys enjoyed this when it went long, but it's a complex question, and I didn't bail out of it with an it depends, so I hope you liked it. We'll be back tomorrow. Remember, if you want to suggest a topic or ask a question for Miyagi Mornings, just send me an email, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. Hey guys, Jack Spierko here uh, with another episode of Miyagi Mornings, and today we are going to talk about growing food wherever you are. What kind of prompted this is two things. One, I did a show, uh, an interview yesterday, where I was on somebody else's show. I was on uh, Sal Mayweather's show called The Agorist, and we talked about food production in, in various different ways. And I had a, a co-guest uh, named uh, Curtis Stone, who is the, known as the urban farmer. He's a pretty amazing guy. But he's recently made a big shift from urban farming to really, really going rural. He's building an off-grid homestead. It's badass. 
And Curtis and I agree on a shitload of things. However, what I realized during that interview is how far to the gloom and doom side Curtis has gone. And I have been the one screaming, get out, get out, get out, get out of the cities. But uh, Curtis was kind of pushing people toward, you know, getting out in the middle of nowhere, being the only solution, uh, that type of thing. And I didn't want to debate that. We each had a chance to say our things, so I just let it be. But I also kind of wanted to come back to my audience with an understanding of what I mean when I say get out and what I mean when, I, when I'm talking about that and what to do if you can't. So the other side that precipitated today's show is I've been looking for really great content that I'm worried someday may disappear from the YouTubes, and I've been duplicating it over on Odyssey. Uh, a lot of great old documentary-type stuff, specifically with permaculture, and I found one featuring, it's almost an hour long, featuring Brad Lancaster. And this guy is an anarcho-permaculture badass. And I don't know if he would call himself an anarchist, but when you go directly violate city laws to prove something and drag the city into doing it almost against their will, which if you watch the video, I'll have a link in the video notes here where you can go find it on my Odyssey channel, um, that's as anarchistic as it gets, right? I mean, that is, and he's literally transformed a neighborhood by cutting concrete curbs, digging some holes and putting in some paths and planting a shitload of trees. I mean, completely transformed the entire neighborhood to the point where it's more secure and more safe. And what I want to try to get across to people is, if you have to do this in a Portland or whatever, then go ahead. And, and the good news is there's actually kind of a lot of momentum in that direction there. The bad news is somebody may throw Molotov cocktails at it and burn it down. When I tell you to get out of the cities, I'm not doing it like some people in the survival space where I'm telling you if you don't do it one day, your whole city's going to uh, to burn. The zombies are going to come eat your guts, right? Like the, That's not the, the, the future I see. The future I see is far more dystopian with control by the state, control of resources by the state, thereby controlling people. And I see in these major what I call flashpoint cities – the eventuality is going to be if you stay there, especially if you're a property holder in those places, you're going to be paying property tax through the roof on a property that's not really worth anything. And they won't care if you can't afford it. They'll just extract everything from you as long as they can because the, the ultimate miners in our world are not the coal miners or the gold miners or the Bitcoin miners. It's the state. The state mines human beings. They often say it's like a tax farm, but see, farms, when they're done right, are sustainable, and you you don't bring them to the edge of collapse, right? That And I guess farming today has become a mining operation. So if you want to call it tax farming in that context, it's exactly what they're doing. They're mining people. They're mining their income, their productivity, and their property. That's what taxation is. It's mining human beings, it is, it is, it is fractional slavery. I know some of you don't want to hear that, but you tell me... What else is a good definition for everything you do, own, produce, you have to give me a portion of, including your labor? If I own 100% of that, you're my slave. If I own 25% of it, what are you? 75% free, what's that make the other 25% of you? And we all know it's, it's actually much higher than that and, and levels of control. So when I say get out, I mean don't stay in these places that burn this summer because you know they're going to burn again. Don't stay in these places that have public policies that are so detrimental to human health and community that they are destroying themselves. 
because that is so obvious that you should be doing it already. The other thing I'm saying, though, is you probably don't want to live where, you know, your house is here, your neighbor's house is here, your neighbor's house is here, your neighbor's house is here, and you're completely surrounded by other people. You want to get a little bit further out, and you want to get out of what I call the Beltway suburbs. And the way you know that is if you generally refer to the place you live as the big city name, even though it's not, you're probably in the Beltway suburbs. So a lot of people that would live like in my area that might live in a place like Carrollton or Farmer's Branch. When somebody asks them where they're from, they just say Dallas because it's easier uh, to explain. But if you would use that terminology with somebody even familiar with the area, then you're and, and they would, it, you're probably in the Beltway suburbs. So like when people ask me where I'm from, I say Fort Worth, one, because I think it's kind of good for them to not actually know where I'm from. And the other reason is because I'm from nowhere. We have a Fort Worth address, and we're nowhere near Fort Worth city limits. We're an unincorporated county area, and I think that's kind of a good strategy, right? So my address is Fort Worth, but I promise you, if you are anywhere in Fort Worth city limits, you are hell and gone from where I live. But, like, cities that are south of me, like White Settlement, would just say, well, I live in Fort Worth, and for all practical purposes, even though they're their own city, they do. Like, those are the places you really need to get out of. Most cities have some sort of a metroplex, and they have some sort of a loop system, bypass system of major interstate and what have you. You need to get significantly outside of there. Even if you can't, even if you're in more of a neighborhood, I want you to look what Brad Lancaster did. And I think that, because one of the things that bothered me that Curtis said yesterday in that show was, basically, if you are, like, really urban Like, at this point, don't even grow. It's not even worth it to grow food. A, month, a year ago, I would have said different, but now just don't even grow anything. I, I think that's bad advice because if you're going to go anywhere eventually, you're going to learn from that experience. And it doesn't have to be expensive. He was talking about buying two years' worth of, you know, stored food. If you live in a place like that, you have no place to put it. Okay? So it, or having a bug out plan. I think that's awesome. We've done whole shows about that and all. But in the end, what I think really people need to get across with each other is when you build strong communities like the one that Brad Lancaster built in Tucson, Arizona, which I would, by the way, not consider in general to be a flashpoint city, especially outskirts like you can tell his neighborhood is, um, it stabilizes things. And we need to realize that you have to understand the weaponry of your enemy so it can properly be countered. So if the weaponry of your enemy is the restriction of resources, it is, and it is, it absolutely is, then what you have to do is you have to create abundance for whatever community you have around you to the point where you're less dependent on that restricted resource. My concern with doing it too much into these cities and towns is that almost everything that you need to do is illegal. So you can take Brad Lancaster's approach, which is, I'm just going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it on Sunday morning when none of the city people are working. And, and then it's going to be so nice that it's going to be hard to tear out. But it took him years and years to develop that. To me, it makes a lot more sense to go to somewhere where you start with a given level of freedom. But this opens, if you watch that video, this opens up a whole new world of opportunity. Because it really focuses in on what I've been trying to teach you guys, which is you are never, and I said this yesterday, you are never going to grow all your own food. You are never going to be 100% self-sufficient. And if you ever pull it off, it will literally be all you do. You will work every day, half to all day, just to provide for your own needs. And you're still going to end up doing something like, well, I'm like what Curtis is doing, put all these big 50-foot-long 
tunnels in. He's growing all these vegetables. He's not going to eat all that. And I, I asked him, he said, no, yeah, they're going to sell it. So they're creating an income. So you're creating a job for yourself. Fine if that's what you want. But there's a lot of people, they want as much of a regular job as they can. Maybe they want a part-time job, so they want to cut expenses. There are opportunities throughout this country where there are suburbs that have basically failed. They're outside of these city flashpoints. They just are kind of languishing. They're not horrible. They're just not great. That's what Brad started with. And if you go with a coordinated movement, I'm going to tell you right now, some of these places, if you wanted to create a uh, like you know like a permaculture community or whatever, a libertarian-minded community, you'd be better off finding a city, you know, a, a suburban block of reasonable size lots, say, you know, quarter to a third acre lots that's kind of like got a bunch of stuff for sale and maybe people would be willing to sell if somebody made them an offer and going and buying all that infrastructure and then retooling that area. That's one method. The other method is you just go somewhere where you can do it and be left alone, set an example and drag people with you by example. There's lots of options here. But this is where you got to get rid of the icantium, and you have to stop blocking your mind with excuses about what you think somebody else is saying so that it doesn't apply to you because you're uncomfortable with it, which is what a lot of you are doing when I say get land or whatever. Again, I'm okay with You know what? A quarter acre is a huge piece of property if it's properly designed and managed. It's huge. A quarter acre of usable space. A tenth of an acre can run a market garden that provides you an income. A tenth of an acre. If you start taking the approach of expanding community, using common spaces, etc., how much do you think you really need? I, I encourage you really to watch this video of Lan uh, Brad Lancaster's uh, efforts in Tucson today and to start understanding this as well. I'm not telling you how to do a thing. I'm telling you ways to do a thing. And then you have to say, like, All the ways he has, there's other ways. There's com combinations of two of his ideas. There's combinations of his idea and this guy's idea and this idea. And it all changes based on where I'm at, et cetera, what my resources are, what have you. But anywhere and everywhere that you start to build long-term, low-input systems that create abundant surplus, you're building stability into those systems. If you watch... The global work that permaculturists like Jeff Lawton and Neil Spackman have done, John D. Liu, etc., when they go into these third world environments that are incredibly unstable, the first thing they do to create stability is what? They put in perennial-based systems that produce food, fibers, medicine, and other products that humans need, and they see to water and shelter. When you do that, you get dramatic stability. This country has had that provided to it artificially through the use of fossil fuels, which I don't hate fossil fuels. I'm not one of those people. But it is a reserve bank of energy that is finite. And we've had, we have pipes going to every house, right? We have a complete centralized system that distributes to everybody based on their ability to pay. Again, not all in, not horrible, But it is vulnerable because anything that attacks the supply hits everybody. When we decentralize, just like cryptocurrency, and we're harvesting our rainwater, if the water that we're using to our sink comes from the grid and it's not there, it's inconvenient, it's not a disaster. And you have to think about that over and over and how you design as much resiliency and non-brittleness wherever you are into your system. If you want to stay in one of these cities and you want to make a go of it, God bless you. It's against my advice, but I respect you for it. 
But if you're going to do that and you're not going to do something like this to build stability in your neighborhood and to build community in your neighborhood, to be blunt, in the end, you will be fucked. You will, because these cities are going to cave in. And I, But what bothered me with Curtis is this idea, and I've been listening to this shit since since 2008 when I started the Survival Podcast. This idea of the, like the golden hordes are going to come out and like, These people are not going to go roving the countryside and stealing shit from farms. They wouldn't know what to do with it if you dumped it in their lap. They're incapable of this action that people so fear. right? What they do is they destroy shit and they go to centralized locations to destroy shit. If you don't believe that, just look at the last 20 years. Every time that everybody flips their shit, where do they go? But the further you get out, the easier this is to do. It does not have to be the middle of Timbuktu. I'm not going to the middle of Timbuktu. I'm 25 minutes from Fort Worth. But I'm forever and a day away from their world. We can do this. And I don't have any worry about some zombie horde marching to my farm. I've got high-capacity magazines. I'll leave it at that. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Hey guys and gals, Jack Spierko here with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Uh, for those of you listening to this in podcast form, this might be one you want to go by, find the, the recap episode at the survivalpodcast.com and pull up the video on Odyssey and take a look at the video. I'll be referencing some things behind me in this video. You won't absolutely need them to kind of understand what I'm talking about, but the reason I set up over here and got way up against my chicken house, which is right there where I'm punching it, is because... It should help, right? And I'm up against the chicken house because of the lighting, because the sun's blazing, and that's not good for cameras. So what I want to talk to you about today is function stacking, and I'm, I'm working on a new system, and like all of the design is not done yet, which is great, because it allows me to start explaining what function stacking is and how you should analyze what you're doing and why you're doing it. So let's start off with what I'm doing here in the first place. I've learned this year already, it's not even halfway through the first month, I've learned this year that the protein in a water plant called water hyacinth in the leaf is as high or higher than soybean, depending on how the soybean's grown. I've also learned that almost all livestock, and certainly ducks and chickens, which are the primary livestock that I own that will be using this, eat it. In fact, they love it. I've also learned that when they don't, what they don't eat makes exceptional compost. I've learned all those things. So I said to myself, self... How do you use these things since you're familiar with this plant and you were going to be using it in some of your pond systems this year anyway because you decided to go away from water lettuce because it caused problems that you don't want to deal with ever again because you don't like dead fish. So myself answered myself and it said, hey, why don't you harness the fact that this plant is also being used to treat duck water, duck wastewater, in large commercial duck operations, and it's improving the quality of the water that comes out the other end by about 85%. And I thought, well, so if I had duck wastewater that went through this plant, I would be in good shape. So then I thought about it and said, well, the problem with that is all your ponds are up high so the ducks can't get in them because you don't want that. And the last thing you need to be doing is you know, putting duck affluent through your beautiful Miyagi ponds, right? Because then it would be Miyagi skank mornings instead of Miyagi mornings, and we don't want that. So what we need is a system that's designed to rapidly flush through and do other things. Well, right behind me, it's kind of hard to see there because of the sun sitting it, you'll see a big square. 
That is a fiberglass container. It's what my big wicking beds are built on that I've done in other videos for you with. These things actually used to hold molasses to feed cattle. So they're really rugged, really strong. I may hit them with a coat of um, epoxy or something like that just as a little insurance policy since they're so old. But it, probably, right now, probably, I'm not sure yet, three of them are going to go back there. They hold a bit over 100 gallons a piece with enough freeboard, that's space on the top, to do what I want to do. So it's about 300 gallons of capacity. That's going to go there. You see right there, you can see kind of the outline of a hole. This is my test hole. I don't know if this is going to all work the way that I think. So the easy solution is I'm going to sink one of those in the ground as deep as I can. And right here, I've got a little more to work with. There's some buildup up high here. But as you guys know, my property has a rock layer. I'm already in a chunk rock there, but it looks like I can get at least 10 inches. I'd like 12. If I can get the chunk rock out before I hit the slab, and if I can get 12 inches there, I can probably get 12 inches to each side of it in my three tanks, go 12 inches in the ground. That means the lip will only be 8 inches high, and I took my laser level yesterday and went up that way, up to the higher side, as to where I want to put 50-gallon stock tank or tanks. I haven't decided yet. And how much I need to elevate them, and how much I need to create dirt ramps for the ducks to get in them and out of them, etc. And all the math works if I can get 12 inches. I can make it work with 10, but it would work much better with 12. Before I go forward, I want to know which one of those I'm dealing with. So now we can start to understand the three-function rule, or the three-reason rule. I actually like three-reason rule better than the three-function rule. Bill Mollison, when he teaches PDCs, or when he used to teach PDCs, because unfortunately a few years he passed away, He's the co-founder of Permaculture, for those that don't know. Said that anytime you put anything anywhere on a property in a design, you should be able to give at least three reasons why you chose that location. And if you can't give three reasons, there might be three good reasons, but you don't know what they are, so you can't effectively design the rest of the system and properly function stack. So let's start off with why that hole that I'm using as a test hole is where it is, and what are the reasons behind it, and how will that relate to function stacking. So the first reason is, I need to be downgrade enough from where the tank that the ducks are going to go swim in every day, poop in, and that tank has to drain with no pumps, by gravity, and that's about the furthest downgrade I can go and still get enough drop to make that happen with no energy. That's one reason, and that's a good effing reason. Reason number two, it needs to be high enough in the landscape to do the other part of what I'm about to explain to you, and if I go any further south than that, it may not work. Reason number two. Reason number three, I want it far enough from the fences that if I need to maintain stuff in here with my lawn tractor, my lawn tractor can fit around that system and cut grass without having to get in there with a weed trimmer any more than necessary right up against the fence. That's reason number three. Reason number four, you see this big building, that's, you can't see it, but I'm touching it, it's how close it is to the frame, this building that the birds are in. I don't want it behind here because I want sun on it because I want rapid growth of my plants. I want part shade, not full shade. If I put it behind this building for a lot of the day, it will get full shade, and that's not what I'm looking for in this particular system. If I were growing fish in it, I might get it well into this shade to keep the water temperatures lower. The only fish that are going to go in there are probably gambrosia mosquito fish. That's about it, just to keep the mosquitoes from being a problem. Mosquitoes will not be a problem. That's reason number four. Reason number five. I plan on trying, if I can get depth, because as I come this way toward the camera, I might not be able to go as deep. I need all three of these tanks to be the same height. If I can space them out, I want them spaced out far enough 
about four to five feet to put an arch using a cattle panel in between them. So I'll have three tanks, two arches. On those arches, I can take wicking containers, which are just basically a cinder block sitting in this tank with a, a, a flower pot with half gravel and half soil sitting in the water line that gets wicking fed, and I can grow vines up over there to create more shade. That gives me my partial shade. It gives me an additional yield. It gives shade for the ducks to hang out in. When I let them in here, they won't be in here that often. But that's another reason that that goes in that location, right? There's, there's more. But I want you to sort of understand, like, the location was carefully chosen. It also kind of defaulted. But once it defaulted to this area, then we started thinking, what are all the other things we want to do here? Now, the function stacking works like this, because there's another reason it's there. Just on the, on the other side of the fence, so there's a fence behind me that separates this whole area from where the ducks usually are allowed to range out onto the back side of my, or the front side of my property. So this is kind of a walled off area. We call it the West Pasture because it's the furthest west one acre on the three acre property. And it's cross fenced off of the other two. So they can only come in here when I left them in here like they're in here today. Right. Now, that means that what I want to be able to do is take this water plant that will be growing in these ponds and feed it to my ducks. Well, all I have to do is take a pitchfork, and if I stand right between that hole and that fence, I cannot move. I can take my pitchfork, and I can go in, and I can get plant, and I can just turn around and dump. Pitchfork, turn around and dump. And I can do three or four pitchforks worth a day, barely taking a step and put the, the, the vegetation over the fence. Now, what's going to go on the other side of the fence? One of my patented, right, big squares of cinder blocks that makes a pit to contain stuff. So they come in, they eat whatever they don't eat, compost. I continue to add compost to that as well. And so now I'm feeding ducks high protein, I'm filtering their wastewater, and I'm feeding them uh, that material, and I'm making compost, which can be returned to the system. It's only just the beginning. These tanks... Whenever I let go the flow from above, which will be, you know, about 100 gallons of duck poop water or about one-third of the total, these tanks will overflow into a system of pipes that will go downgrade from here. And I haven't decided exactly how I'm going to do it yet. Tune into the podcast today to hear more about where I'm going with this. But there'll be somewhere between four and six trees that this water will fertigate and water, and it will be infiltrated into this entire slope through some sort of microswell system. That's another reason that it's there, and that's another function that it serves. And those trees will either just provide shade, maybe they'll provide fodder. I mean, there's all types of things. I haven't even decided on the variety of trees yet. This is another thing where each tree and where it is, at least three reasons and three functions. Okay? This is a campground now. This used to be kind of all grown in and gnarly. I want it to stay open, so I have to think about how I design it so it's easy to mow and maintain having four to six big trees here eventually, and this is very fertile because all the nutrient flow from the duck holding area has been seeping into it for seven years now. This will grow even though it's shallow soils. It just keeps going from there. Now I've got water from my well right there. I can put in two just kind of cheap back and forth sprinklers, run them maybe two days a week, and then take a drought tolerant, which it won't be drought conditions at all over here, right, Billy Roy? A drought-tolerant, rapid-growing feed crop for my ducks and chickens in the form of something like Japanese millet. I can just broadcast that, and the first time I do that, I'll go ahead and throw about five bales of straw out here as a scatter mulch, and these little birds will not be allowed in here until that crop comes into harvest size, which I won't harvest. I don't need to do the harvest. So now we've got the trees growing, we've got all the flows going, all of that's going, and now we're growing millet. 
So the millet will only take about six to seven weeks to mature and be ready for harvest by the birds. I will then let them in here. If they go in those pond tanks, I don't care. It's designed to deal with their wastewater anyway. Okay? No problem, because they're only going to be here a few days. They're going to mow down that millet. And as soon as they're done, another crop of millet, maybe buckwheat, whatever's next, I'll come in and I'll just broadcast that. And then I'll take my scythe and I'll drop the straw from the millet onto the next. And I'll keep doing that. When we get into fall next year, I'll throw down a really winter hardy crop like triticale or barley and do the same thing. If you've read Masanobo Fukuoka's work, it's kind of like that. And this area will continue to get more fertile and more productive with almost no work, very little input, but it's only because I have been thinking about this for weeks and I'm not done yet. You know, they talk about not getting analysis paralysis and there's a point to that. There's also a point where you mature enough of the designer and you're doing something that is a significant keystone component to really think about it. It's not trying to talk yourself out of it. It's not looking for excuses. What it is comes down to how do I maximize this? Because the way this system will work on a daily level of maintenance, I will walk out and I will open a valve to whichever two of the two swales I want to fill, and I will open a valve at the tank. And you know what will happen? It'll drain. It'll drain into those tanks, overflow, and go into that swale. And there's some cool shit going on down there. It's not a typical swale, by the way. If you tune in the podcast here today. When that's done, I'll close that valve. I'll close the valve from the, that I just drained and open the other one so it's all ready to go for the next day and go to the, the different one. So it's each swale one, you know, one day on, one day off. And I'll turn a, a spigot that'll be sitting right over those tanks, which will be plumbed together, and I'll turn it on and they'll fill up and I'll turn it off. And then I'll pick up my duck eggs while that's happening and, and go back in the house. I could even, and I might, put a float valve in there, right, and a valve to cut it off, and that way when I turn it on, It'll shut itself off so I don't forget about it, but I'll shut it off during the day because I want the ducks to continue to splash and continue to drain down on the water supply. We actually want that water to prob probably not do that because the other thing that's going to have my wife loves willow trees. Well, right where those tanks are up there, I'll plant a willow tree so just all the bypass splash will fertigate and water that willow tree and we'll never have to touch it. And that's in their holding area, which then gives them a great big thing that they like, which is shade, which also helps with evaporation and heating of their water that's going into the system in the first place. Do you see how this starts to work? Anyway, I'm at 13 minutes. That's long for an episode of Miyagi Mornings. But this is the way, guys. When you're wondering how do you build systems, and like I said yesterday, you can do a lot of these things. Maybe not quite this, but you can do a lot of things like this. You can micro-size this system, and you can do this on a quarter to a half of an acre. Get yourself... Here's another thing I want to throw at you today, and we'll talk about this maybe tomorrow. I'm not sure. Access the land. When I say get on land, I don't necessarily mean you need to go out and buy five acres, three acres, two acres, whatever. Go somewhere, get out of these beltway cities, start building systems like this, and there's lots of ways to access land without actually owning it. Start thinking like rich people. There's nothing wrong with thinking like a rich person. Not all rich people are bad, guys. Like that class warfare shit, that'll kill you, right? Poor people want to own things. Rich people want to control things. That's my final thought of the day. I'll catch, with you, catch up with you again tomorrow. Well, good morning, everybody, on a Friday. Welcome to the end of the week, Friday edition, episode, I believe, 35 of Miyagi Mornings. And for those of you watching the video, instead of listening to the recap podcast, I am in my office instead of outside by the Miyagi or some other place on the property. And the reason is, well, it's cold, but it's not cold enough to keep me in. 
I am time crunched, but I probably wouldn't be if I had just got on it earlier. But the real reason, because I want you to hear me, and right now it's blowing about 25 mile an hour sustained winds outside, which is not good for audio. Anyway, so here's what we're going to talk about today. And I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast. I definitely talked about it yesterday, kind of referenced it yesterday on Miyagi Mornings, but it's being a lifelong learner. And I want to talk about the difference between, in the beginning about education versus school. School can be education that's valid and useful, but not necessarily. So if you think about it, about probably at least 60% to 80% of what you were taught in school, you do not remember. If you were given a test on it, you would not pass it. And somehow you're functioning as a happy, you know, go-lucky adult teen, depending on how old you are listening to me. Many of you are, that listen to me are in your 60s and 70s, and your life is just effing great, even though you don't remember about 80% of the shit that they crammed in your head. Which means that it was totally unnecessary for your happiness, your life, your well-being, and your progression in the world. However, if you take schooling that is properly attuned to what you want to do, yes, it can help you, but that is not what I'm talking about there. I just want to like point out what I'm criticizing and point out what I'm not criticizing going in because some people are special little people and they hear what they want. Whenever they hear anything counter to what they believe, they fill in the blanks with a bunch of bullshit I didn't say. I didn't say all school sucks. I'm telling you, though, that education and school are not equivalents. And It is up to you what you're passionate about, what you love, and to figure out what you need to learn. And there is so much information available in the world today that you should be getting what I would consider the equivalent of multiple degrees in specific disciplines that you care about that are important in your life. And some of them you can like work on, really drill down and focus on one thing for maybe a few months, or maybe you're doing multiple things, which is what I do. And try to be more of a polymath. A polymath can be summed up by Ben Franklin's a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none, though I prefer the spiritualism of that, which is slightly altered, a jack-of-all-trades and a master of some. And I think that's really the way to go forward with this. And you might think it's crazy to think that you could get the equivalent of a degree in a given discipline in one to two months. But it's not, because most people that have a degree in something, first of all, like 50% or more of their degree was based on the college curriculum you know, system of accreditation. And, and so 50% to 60% to 70% of the shit that they went through and paid for has no relevance whatsoever for their ability to do the thing that they went to school for, assuming they actually went to school for a thing rather than some generalized bullshit or something like gender studies, which is completely useless to everybody anyway. Um, so right there, you can just throw over half of it out that you spent four years uh, doing. And then of the stuff that's actually relevant you probably are going to retain, again, about 60% to 70% at best. So by the time you do that, and then you say, like, what do I actually need to do this thing and be competent at it, you can whittle that down to the hardcore things. And then what do you already know? And if you're a lifelong learner, you're always adding a whole shitload of what you were being taught you already knew, or you had, you know, the human ability to extrapolate. I didn't know this thing, but when I got to this place where I needed this thing, I knew this thing and that thing, and together they make this thing, and I really knew that anyway. I just had never been confronted with the problem. When you can get to that level, you actually understand shit. Like being able to regurgitate, like the way that you do this is you insert tab A to tab B and fold it over. You don't know shit. 
You don't know shit. And even if you memorized it, you don't know shit because you could have just had a manual that told you that. And when you needed it, looked it up. So you didn't need to know it. When you actually know how to look at something, you're really not sure. But you can take your existing information, put it together, and come up with a solution. That's when you're actually an educated some bitch. Okay, And until you can do that, you're a dumbass. I'm sorry. And most of the people that are education systems turning out, because it's not an education system, it's a schooling system, it's a training system, and it's an indoctrination system, are dumbasses. You're, there, there are people that spend a lot of money to have a credential and a piece of paper to be a certified dumbass. And I'm sorry if you don't like it. It's true, because I've hired them. I've had plenty of educated idiots work for me. And you have to teach them their job, right? And then the self-directed ones, they learn their job on the job. You hire them. You say, I need this shit done. They know how to do these things. You give them some supplemental training and everything else they figure out for themselves. And most of those people that had degrees that work for me, they probably would have been further ahead had they never gone to school. Because I certainly didn't hire them because they had a degree. I had one guy work for me for two years, and I'm like, well, you don't have a degree. He goes, yeah, I do. I'm like, I didn't even look at it in your resume. I looked at your experience. So... How do we become educated in things that are not always in for professional development, but for our own personal development? That is, we need to stay hungry. Hungry for knowledge. So you don't have to stay hungry for food, because all you have to do is not eat for long enough and go do shit so you're physically active, and eventually your body will start to run a caloric deficit, and it will send like little emergency warnings to your brain and say, hey, we need fuel. And your stomach will rumble. You'll be like, oh, shit, I need to eat. But you can be a dumbass your whole life, and you never just get this natural hunger to learn unless it's encouraged and understood and desired. So we need to stay hungry for knowledge. And I, I'm going to tell you something that's going to sound odd. The way you stay hungry for knowledge is by acquiring knowledge. And I'm a big believer in pattern recognition. So I want you to think about this. I want you to really bring, like, this is learning right here. I want you to bring this in intellectually and really think about the connection of the pattern here. If I have barren soil and I want to grow something and I have to build fertility, we all know this. It seems unrelated? Hang with me. Good teachers use analogies. So what we'll do is we'll go out and we'll maybe we'll top dress it with compost. And maybe we'll even add some organic fertilizer, like a good product, like Dr. Earth First, and then we'll top dress it with compost Then we'll put a layer of mulch, which we know is going to break down over time and inc increase fertility. And then we'll plant into it. And when we plant individual plants, we may give them a little handful of fertility, a little handful of compost in the hole, and a little handful of Dr. Earth in the hole, we'll put it in there. However, if we keep doing that, and we keep records exactly how much fertility we add to that soil, as long as we do everything organically here, right? All natural. We don't use chemicals that kill life. We use natural substances that encourage life. Over a certain number of years, we could actually run a spreadsheet. We could calculate how much fertility did we add to the soil from inputs from outside the system, how much did the plants that we grew took out, and how much is left. And if it was only based on our inputs, right, the fertility only gained by the fertility we brought in from inputs, then it should be a simple mathematical equation. Existing fertility... Is fertility added minus fertility used or lost equals current fertility. But what will happen if we do that for four or five years? The fertility, the NPK, the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and the other micronutrients, macro and micronutrient profile in there, will go up exponentially over time. Where did it come from? Where did it come from? We didn't put it there. 
It came from soil life. It came from the plant that grew and dropped its leaves, or we chopped it and dropped it, and we left the roots behind, and that was eaten by soil organisms. Soil organisms migrated in. But how did that happen? We started by applying some fertility, and then we gave supplemental fertility over time to the point where the system began to self-propagate fertility using natural cycles like the carbon cycle, like the hydraulic water cycle, right? All of these things. The, the soil food web, all of this kicked in, but we got it going because we started out with a place somebody had screwed up and denuded to nothing, sterile ground, and we turned it in three to five years into this incredible system that once that's done, unless somebody screws it up again or some natural disaster occurs, it will continue to build its own fertility. It will go into different plants. It will success into something kind of shrub-like, perennial forest-like if we don't keep maintaining it, but it will still get more and more and more fertile because we started by putting fertility into it. This is how the, the, the thirst for knowledge works. The more you learn, the more you desire more knowledge. And the more you learn, the more you found, form a foundational knowledge that allows you to more quickly amass new knowledge. The smarter you are, the quicker you can become smarter. Okay? And I think smarter is maybe, like if we're measuring smart with IQ, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just the generalized things that you know that you're capable of explaining, teaching, and doing. And let me say one last thing before we end today. If you cannot teach a thing, you do not know a thing. If you cannot teach a thing, you do not know a thing. Now, you, maybe you're not a real charismatic teacher, a real entertaining teacher, but if you can't actually sit somebody down and go through, and they have, they're not an idiot, right? They have the capability to learn, and you can't take that person from not knowing to knowing, you don't know. Next up, for some of you guys that fancy yourselves as teachers, especially official teachers that are all mad from the beginning of this, if you can't teach in such a way, that a significant number of your students don't begin teaching on their own without even thinking about it, you're a shitty teacher. I'm sorry, it's the truth. True teaching is so much like fertility that when it's properly applied, it replicates itself. I've had people, when I've said that before, say, well, that's becoming a master teacher. No, that's becoming a teacher. Mastering anything only means that you're good enough at it to actually be good at it. With that, guys, I hope you enjoyed this week. Please share Miyagi Mornings with your friends that may not be ready for a full podcast yet. And remember, if you're watching the video and you'd like to catch up on the whole week, every Saturday early we put out across iTunes, Stitcher, and all the feeds a recap episode of all the week's Miyagi Mornings in an audio format in the regular survival podcast feeds. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.